Chapter 31 Part 1 of Struggles and Triumphs or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum Written by himself This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum Chapter 31 The Art of Money-Getting Part 1 Seeing the necessity of making more money to assist in extricating me from my financial difficulties, and leaving my affairs in the hands of Mr. James D. Johnson, my wife and youngest daughter Pauline boarding with my eldest daughter, Mrs. Thompson, in Bridgeport, early in 1858, I went back to England and took Tom Thumb to all the principal places in Scotland and Wales, giving many exhibitions and making much money which was remitted, as heretofore, to my agents and assignees in America. Finding, after a while, that my personal attention was not needed in the Tom Thumb exhibitions, and confiding him almost wholly to agents who continued the tour through Great Britain, under my general advice and instruction, I turned my individual attention to a new field. At the suggestion of several American gentlemen resident in London, I prepared a lecture on the art of money-getting. I told my friends that, considering my clock complications, I thought I was more competent to speak on the art of money losing, but they encouraged me by reminding me that I could not have lost money if I not had previously possessed the faculty of making it. They further assured me that my name, having been intimately associated with the Jenny Lind concerts and other great money-making enterprises, the lecture would be sure to prove attractive and profitable. The old clocks ticked in my ear the reminder that I should improve every opportunity to turn an honest penny and my lecture was duly announced for delivery in the great St. James Hall, Regent Street, Piccadilly. It was thoroughly advertised, a feature I never neglected, and, at the appointed time, the hall, which would hold 3,000 people, was completely filled, at prices of three and two shillings, 75 and 50 cents, per seat, according to location. It was the evening of December 29, 1858, since my arrival in Great Britain the previous spring, I had spent months in traveling with General Tom Thumb, and now I was to present myself in a new capacity to the English public as a lecturer. I could see in my audience all my American friends who had suggested this effort, all my theatrical and literary friends. And as I saw several gentlemen whom I knew to be connected with the leading London papers, I felt sure that my success or failure would be duly chronicled the next morning. There was, moreover, a general audience that seemed eager to see the showman of whom they had heard so much, and to catch from his lips the art which, in times past, had contributed so largely to his success in life. Stimulated by these things, I tried to do my best, and I think I did it. The following is the lecture substantially as it was delivered, though it was interspersed with many anecdotes and illustrations which are necessarily omitted and I should add that the subjoined copy, being adapted to the meridian in which it had been repeatedly delivered, contains numerous local allusions to men and matters in the United States, which, of course, did not appear in the original draft prepared for my English audiences. The Art of Money-Getting In the United States, where we have more land than people, it is not at all difficult for persons in good health to make money. In this comparatively new field there are so many avenues of success open, so many vocations which are not crowded, that any person of either sex who is willing, 
at least for the time being, to engage in any respectable occupation that offers, may find lucrative employment. Those who really desire to attain an independence have only to set their minds upon it, and adopt the proper means, as they do in regard to any other object which they wish to accomplish, and the thing is easily done. But however easy it may be found to make money, I have no doubt many of my hearers will agree it is the most difficult thing in the world to keep it. The road to wealth is, as Dr. Franklin truly says, as plain as the road to mill. It consists simply in expending less than we earn. That seems to be a very simple problem. Mr. Micawber, one of these happy creations of the genial Dickens, puts the case in a strong light when he says that to have an income of twenty pounds per annum and to spend twenty pounds and sixpence is to be the most miserable of men, whereas to have an income of only twenty pounds and spend but nineteen pounds and sixpence is to be the happiest of mortals. Many of my hearers may say, We understand this, this is economy, and we know economy is wealth. We know we can't eat our cake and keep it also. Yet I beg to say that perhaps more cases of failure arise from mistakes on this point than almost any other. The fact is, many people think they understand economy when they really do not. True economy is misapprehended, and people go through life without properly comprehending what the principle is. Some say, I have an income of so much, and here is my neighbor who has the same, Yet every year he gets something ahead and I fall short. Why is it? I know all about the economy. He thinks he does, but he does not. There are many who think that the economy consists in saving cheese parings and candle ends, in cutting off two pence from the laundress's bill, and doing all sorts of little, mean, dirty things. Economy is not meanness. The misfortune is also that this class of persons let their economy apply in only one direction. They fancy they are so wonderfully economical in saving half a penny where they ought to spend two pence, and they think they can afford to squander in other directions. A few years ago, before kerosene oil was discovered or thought of, one might stop overnight at almost any farmer's house in the agricultural districts and get a very good supper. But after supper he might attempt to read in the sitting room, and would find it impossible with the inefficient light of one candle. The hostess, seeing his dilemma, would say, it is rather difficult to read here evenings. The proverb says, You must have a ship at sea in order to be able to burn two candles at once. We never have an extra candle except on extra occasions. These extra occasions occur perhaps twice a year. In this way the good woman saves five, six, or ten dollars in that time. But the information which might be derived from having the extra light would, of course, far outweigh a ton of candles. But the trouble does not end here. Feeling that she is so economical in tallow candles, she thinks she can afford to go frequently to the village and spend twenty or thirty dollars for ribbons and furbelows, many of which are not necessary. This false economy may frequently be seen in men of business, and in those instances it often runs to writing paper. You find good businessmen who save all the old envelopes and scraps and would not tear a new sheet of paper if they could avoid it for the world. This is all very well. They may in this way save five or ten dollars a year, but being so economical, only in note paper, they think they can afford to waste time, to have expensive parties, and to drive their carriages. This is an illustration of Dr. Franklin's saving at the spigot and wasting at the bunghole. Penny wise and pound foolish.
Punch, in speaking of this one-idea class of people, says, They are like the man who bought a penny herring for his family's dinner and then hired a coach and four to take it home. I never knew a man to succeed in practicing this kind of economy. True economy consists in always making the income exceed the outgo. Wear the old clothes a little longer if necessary. Dispense with the new pair of gloves. Mend the old dress. Live on plainer food if need be, so that under all circumstances, unless some unforeseen accident occurs, there will be a margin in favor of the income. A penny here and a dollar there placed at interest goes on accumulating and in this way the desired result is attained. It requires some training, perhaps, to accomplish this economy, but when once used to it, you will find there is more satisfaction in rational saving than in irrational spending. Here is a recipe which I recommend. I have found it to work an excellent cure for extravagance and especially for mistaken economy. When you find that you have no surplus at the end of the year, and yet have a good income, I advise you to take a few sheets of paper and form them into a book and mark down every item of expenditure. Post it every day or week in two columns, one headed necessaries, or even comforts, and the other headed luxuries. You will find that the latter column will be double, treble, and frequently ten times greater than the former. The real comforts of life cost but a small portion of what most of us can earn. Dr. Franklin says, It is the eyes of others and not our own eyes which ruin us. If all the world were blind except myself, I should not care for the fine clothes or furniture. It is the fear of what Mrs. Grundy may say that keeps the noses of many worthy families to the grindstone. In America, many persons like to repeat, We are all free and equal but it is a great mistake in more senses than one. That we are all born free and equal is a glorious truth in one sense, yet we are not all born equally rich, and we never shall be. One may say, There is a man who has an income of $50,000 per annum, while I have but $1,000. I knew that fellow when he was poor like myself. Now he is rich and thinks he is better than I am. I will show him that I am as good as he is. I will go and buy a horse and buggy. No, I cannot do that, but I will go and hire one and ride this afternoon on the same road that he does, and thus prove to him that I am as good as he is. My friend, you need not take that trouble. You can easily prove that you are as good as he is. You only have to behave as well as he does. But you cannot make anybody believe that you are as rich as he is. Besides, if you put on these airs and waste your time and spend your money, your poor wife will be obliged to scrub her fingers off at home and buy her tea two ounces at a time and everything else in proportion in order that you may keep up appearances and, after all, deceive nobody. On the other hand, Mrs. Smith may say that her next-door neighbor married Johnson for his money and everybody says so. She has a nice $1,000 camel's hair shawl and she will make Smith get her an imitation one, and she will sit in a pew right next to her neighbor in church in order to prove that she is her equal. My good woman, you will not get ahead in the world if your vanity and envy thus take the lead. In this country where we believe the majority ought to rule, we ignore that principle in regard to fashion, and let a handful of people, calling themselves the aristocracy, run up a false standard of perfection. 
And, in endeavoring to rise to that standard, we constantly keep ourselves poor, all the time digging away for the sake of outside appearances. How much wiser to be a law unto ourselves and say, we will regulate our outgo by our income and lay up something for a rainy day. People ought to be as sensible on the subject of money-getting as on any other subject. Like causes produces like effects. You cannot accumulate a fortune by taking the road that leads to poverty. It needs no profit to tell us that those who live fully up to their means, without any thought of a reverse in this life, can never attain a pecuniary independence. Men and women accustomed to gratify every whim and caprice will find it hard, at first, to cut down their various unnecessary expenses, and will feel it a great self-denial to live in a smaller house than they have been accustomed to, with less expensive furniture, less company, less costly clothing, fewer servants, a less number of balls, party, theater-goings, carriage-ridings, pleasure excursions, cigar-smokings, liquor-drinkings, and other extravagances. But, after all, if they will try the plan of laying by a nest egg, or, in other words, a small sum of money at interest or judiciously invested in land, they will be surprised at the pleasure to be derived from constantly adding to their little pile, as well as from all the economical habits which are engendered by this course. The old suit of clothes and the old bonnet and dress will answer for another season. The croton or spring water will taste better than champagne. A cold bath and a brisk walk will prove more exhilarating than a ride in the finest coach, a social chat, an evening's reading in the family circle, or an hour's play of Hunt the Slipper and Blind Man's Bluff will be far more pleasant than a fifty or a five hundred dollar party when the reflection on the difference in cost is indulged by those who begin to know the pleasures of saving. Thousands of men are kept poor, and tens of thousands are made so after they have acquired quite sufficient to support them well through life, in consequence of laying their plans of living on too broad a platform. Some families expend $20,000 per annum, and some much more, and would scarcely know how to live on less, while others secure more solid enjoyment frequently on a twentieth part of that amount. Prosperity is a more severe ordeal than adversity, especially sudden prosperity. Easy come, easy go is an old and true proverb. A spirit of pride and vanity, when permitted to have full sway, is the undying cankerworm which gnaws the very vitals of a man's worldly possessions. Let them be small or great, hundreds or millions. Many persons, as they begin to prosper, immediately expand their ideas and commence expending for luxuries, until in a short time their expenses swallow up their income, and they become ruined by their ridiculous attempts to keep up appearances and make a sensation. I know a gentleman of fortune who says that when he first began to prosper, his wife would have a new and elegant sofa. That sofa, he says, cost me thirty thousand dollars. When the sofa reached his house, it was found necessary to get chairs to match, then sideboards, carpets, and tables to correspond with them, and so on through the entire stock of furniture, when at last it was found that the house itself was quite too small and old-fashioned for the furniture, and a new one was built to correspond with the new purchases. Thus, added my friend, summing up an outlay of thirty thousand dollars caused by that single sofa, and saddling on me in the shape of servants, equipage and the necessary expenses attendant upon keeping up a fine establishment, 
a yearly outlay of $11,000, and a tight pinch at that. Whereas, ten years ago we lived with much more real comfort, because with much less care, on as many hundreds. The truth is, he continued, that sofa would have brought me to inevitable bankruptcy, had not a most unexampled tide of prosperity kept me above it, and had I not checked the natural desire to cut a dash. End of chapter 31, part 1. Recording by Jared Hind, Springfield, Missouri.